The first poet is Dominic Leonard. His writing has appeared in Poetry London, The PM Review, Oxford Poetry, Ample Flora, The Scores, and in many other pamphlets. His pamphlet of Centos, is that the right word, Dominic? Centos, is after the medieval mystery plays, based on medieval mystery plays, Love Bring Myself, and was published by Broken Sleep this year. Dominic? I'm going to set a timer. Okay, let's take time. Thanks all for coming. I've got quite the cushy position of going first, which is nice. So these two poor people have to sit in excruciating <laughs> 20 and 40 minutes, respectively. <laughs> I get to enjoy myself. <clears throat> Against luster. Lying in bed, watching headlights swing silver across the room, how bad to get up and walk around naked, soothingly. 10pm, wine sad. Tasteful modern light pulls at my sleep shirt. What is worthy of a smile in day-to-day -day life? Being good doesn't matter, and locally produced jam doesn't matter, and sex doesn't matter. I am determined that an explanation should be simple. Why they do this, the living, the contemporary moment, the momentary contempt of it, the soul splashing about in what the body is made of. It is so useless to live together melodramatically. One huge deliberate funfair, each of us stood trembling forests in Prussian blue, hands jammed and breaking in the cogs of the world. Summer stamps on us. In a soft wind, clouds sop up the earth like slices of bread through filthy water. Please, a few more beautiful ideas. Just like that, breathy like that. Do that again. So one of the poet Heather Crystal. I saw her do a reading late last year where she took a really long zip of water <laughs> between poems and just stared at the audience. And then she said, <clears throat> I feel like drinking during a reading is kind of like a power move. <laughs> sit in silence. Think about what you've heard. <laughs> Her respects. Harispex is um, a Roman kind of prophesier who um, ascribes the future through the entrails of a slaughtered animal. When the wind outside came in and bent me into ridicule, I remembered these fingers and the fibrous art of divination. How to descend into the body's yoke, the slick harbours of fat, pools and avenues that received me richly into the butter of their wanting. Standing there among the wet fractals, I was pale as a seawall in snow. But the less you know about pain and its fabulous geometry, the more you can do with it. I was taken to a carving desk and made complex, had organ sites exchanged for floodlands and my nerve endings concealed in a gentle pink film. To be worshipped is to be broken from the outside. So where is a place where my hands will get done their filthy business in peace. I have looked again into the glass in the sink to see what will come, casting the whole numb history of softness and hardness upon this shore, upon this work I did with my hands, all the crunchy pathos of human closeness. The mind will believe whatever the body tells it. So I climbed out from its sugary depths 
and the gaps full of jewels and scribble and re-angled light were sealed shut, and I was awake by the window, carving my mouth open so that evil could not be made within to get out all the slush, all the necessary dirt. <coughs> the next poem is a sort of... I hadn't written anything in, like, months. It was really getting on my nerves. And I thought, right, the next, like, vaguely profound thing that happens to me, I'm just going to write a poem about it. <laughs> and then I met my girlfriend's newborn cousin. So that, that worked out quite well. So this is a poem for Laurie called uh, This Mysterious. Enter by night, the moon, 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 slipping down through the smart hatch of your gaze, watching as the cold truth of it ties a cat's cradle between your fingers. Little Wotherer, I wish for you huge luminous, scribbles and stridency, boiled milk, to be as awake and baffled as any of us who float this mysterious glass canoe over the numberless goings-on of life. All you can hold. All you can hold. And yes, life can be held. And yes, I do fear. But unhooked chunks of night flocking to your side like great ants come through the sonic cold, bearing fruit and feeble explanations for everything, not least the gravity that hangs, speechless from your thumb. Go in your small wellies across the endless rooftops. Okay. I haven't read this poem in front of people before, which, for reasons which will become apparent, so... <laughs> Robin. At midnight, the worst year since the last worst year, now done with and off the record, I remember each itchy mistake while wrapped in a blanket drinking something bad in the coldest room of the house. I hold myself, I use my arms. Across the hall, my friends play a call-and-response party game, singing lines of ABBA and responding with the next. They don't notice as the year drags its raiment into the next with its big arms, slogging its swagger and baggage. I remember seeing a robin with its new mate outside the room yesterday, every bush and fence blanketed with snow, everything soaked in the gold, blank wash. Too early in the season to partner, but responding, I suppose, to instinct, to build a house and rooms to live in. The tiles of the roof of the closing year freeze, crack and come loose, and I remember the frost that cracked down the inside of my arms, that morning, the truck gathered you in its arms and carried you home in a mystery of blankets. You were walking to school, but I remember, as if it happened at night, over instantly. Response teams found you too far off. Sorry, this time of year, you just happen in my head. The fields and rooms become too large. I wander to and from your room in a hospital that doesn't exist, where your arms are soft and untouched. You are beautiful. The year has only just begun. You are nested in blankets in a bed where it wasn't over instantly, and your response time and speech improve, but I cannot remember these. Your heartbeat, your voice, I cannot remember you. I can't store this clunky grief. There isn't room. The robins outside make a home, responding to each other's songs so they can rebuild. 
I drag my arms off the floor and go to my friends, who are so blanketed with each other, who are so blindingly alive this year. I'm sorry I can only remember you on New Year's. Outside your room, a nurse is thumping a blanket. No response, no response. Keep holding my arm. We had a happy one now. No dark pastoral. Too many papers. The sunlight was different then. It swayed in stalks like beautiful blinking sisters cloaked round in eros, eros, eros. I laid the knots of light down piece by piece into a circle. There is no mist-flown field, no great holy pond of black winds, just the last juice of March draining off the board. All my dreams are wearing bright, ugly waistcoats, and it is spring, almost definitely. Yeah, I've got time for these. That's cool. Okay. I thought I'd prepared too much, but I haven't. I've prepared slightly too little, so I'm going to space these out a bit more. <laughs> when you practice them at home, you forget that, of course, you're checking your phone and getting distracted by things. Okay, this is a um, slightly longer poem. It's in three parts, which you will know by the ruffling of papers, because they're not named or titled or anything. It's called A Motorway is a Very Strong Wind. Did anyone see the favourite, that film? Yeah. His an earlier film of his called Dogtooth is about this weird family who live in a kind of fenced-off enclosure and they um, live by themselves and it's weird and horrible. And um, I think one of the few, first few lines of the film sort of go through these various wrong definitions, like a, a, a something is a something and it's incorrect. Anyway, th this title of this poem is taken from that. It's called A Motorway is a Very Strong Wind. We remember it differently, I know. But in my version, you couldn't bear this green emergency for long. Ambled dreamlike into a painting, a painting, and slid back out of it like a wet horse. But in it no fault, either or away, no, I know. Still life with you, away. A river can plead, it can. You lied about this too, and I remember it. Remember you going out into the empty fields. You cannot leave a place if you know where you are going. No why, but since, either it. Well then, ambled dreamlike along and out, a blue dismantling, breaking bottles on the bedside as you went. The cold so sharp it felt arranged in circles on the hills. I want you to feel this, but know nothing. I do not want you to know, I want you to feel to feel it. Stop. Get out. So what? I can bear it, but not for long. I do not encourage courage. In fact, it is the last thing I encourage. A broken door handle. The audio of the shipwreck buried also in that house. A crypt with all the pleasure gouged out of it and sewn shut. I remember it differently. So I bring it back a different way. I remember what lies sweetly on a picture what runs away, what glances back. If I wait for you, I will do it out here, drinking this lemony backwater. I will stay in these clothes. 
Plates and furniture were broken, it happened, it happened. To be believed I had to make my days measurable, and since doubt is an open fling, here is what was conclusive, a man I did not know, shaking the morning out like an ice tray, that this came first, and then the next, and then, as if the damage could be scraped off so easily, as if a report so crisply linear could be so flawed, a realisation folding through the blood in green sheets. The water at that hour was not like water, the sentences uncertain, the beasts wild. But there, then, in that terrible gulping cavern, I let you in on a secret. I never believed you. And I have been the same now for a long time. I have no love left for secrecy, the wicked fucking work of it. Doubt is an open fling, a wet riddle, a dark cloud, dark cloud. Happened, it happened, that fingers were crushed into wood and memory blocked up in my pores like cubes of salt. That the rain is now, glass curtains of it. <coughs> Coming home late from a stoning. Putting your coat upon the rack, making coffee, closing the door. What were you saying? Something about parallax, colours as vibrations, as distances that collect pain, as ways to put back together what was taken apart. Step backwards until you see it, until the lines join, the secret's perilous sway between failure, known and success, not known but not known to be, not known, and lastly, the facts. You said you never would, but you did. You always said there wasn't, but there was. You said you said it, but you would not. By the time I say this, I will have said it. And why would I say something twice? If something is true, how do you wash it away? How do you know if something is true until you have washed it away? We said we said it, but did we? Did we? Yeah, I'm going to have to finish early because I've got two poems left and they're definitely not four minutes, so that, that's fine. <coughs> My lovely fellow poets can get on with it. We can, we can go back to the pub. Um, about four years ago, I wrote a villanelle. I um, <coughs> went to see my great-granddad's grave in Edinburgh. And my great-granddad has exactly the same name as my actual granddad, Charlie, Charlie Peacock Fraser, which is an awesome name. And um, he found it quite odd seeing a grave with his own name on it, understandably. So being the young, pretentious poet that I was, um, I thought, I'll write a villanelle about this. Um, and it was awful, obviously. And, um, <laughs> But I, I, so I, so I got rid of it and binned it, and then I sort of felt quite bereft of it, so I wrote this in its place. It's not a villanelle, don't worry. It's called On Deleting a Villanelle About My Grandfather. Looking down to waxy traffic, it is all I can do to not weep like an old brass coin. And outside, the night lying down, like a glove, and your astonishment of hands healing here in this soft hotel. And you, the willowy street lamp, I put my hands to. And finally, this is another one of those poems that sort of cranked me back into gear after being completely unable to do anything in the wake of certain horrible events a few years ago, um, until I was walking home from a club one evening, and there was a nice full moon, and I started coming up with stupid, 
metaphors to describe it, just to entertain myself. And I wrote them down on my phone, and then the next day turned them into a poem. So there you go. <laughs> oh, the creative process. <laughs> it's called O, just the letter O. Imagine it kind of hovering above me. Dear Moon, I have forgotten your name again. Forgive me. O ragged dreamcatcher moon. O empty theatre moon. It is cold down here. I can't feel my fingers. Dear moon, I am drunk on light and thinking about how churches look after dark. Do you ever feel distracted by the sunset? It is very cold. O toothache moon. O chessboard moon. Drive me home. Dear moon, down here it is exciting to go to bed with your shoes on. And sometimes I wonder if I'm only biting my tongue to stop you from hearing my teeth chattering. Moon, I have never sold my body for less than it was worth. Down here it is easy to forget about ecstasy. Oh, wet underbelly of moon, covered in twigs from sleeping in the hedges, you are a heaven waiting to be poured out. I have written this in condensation. I hope that's okay. You were never one for mementos. Down here, everything is fine. Oh, silver foil moon. Oh, vulnerable, triumphant moon. Oh, locked bathroom cabinet of moon, it is okay to make mistakes. I hate to see you sat huddled under the window like that. Won't you come back to bed? I'm sorry to say that most nights I can hear you talking to yourself. Don't worry. Dear moon, I am scared about everything too. Oh, old cabbage moon, from down here you look as smooth as an oboe, but I know you have secrets. I know the rooms within a scar. Oh, dearest moon, I love the nights like these. The sky gets so complicated. It's nights like these that make me wish I could do your cold job for you. Keeping the sky upright, washing the heavy hills. With 15 seconds to go. Thank you. There you go. Thank you very much. Well done. 15 seconds is looking for you getting off the stage. <laughs> Next, Phoebe. Phoebe Stoops, who has the winner of the Young Foil Poets Award four times. She's performed at the South Black Centre, Waterston's Trafalgar Square, and the Waylock Poetry <coughs> and was the Ledbury Festival Young Poet in Residence in 2015. So an old hand here. Um, she widely appeared in the Rialto, the North, the Morning Star, Ash, and Ambit. Her first pamphlet, Gin and Tonic, for a wonderful name, is available now, and her first full-length collection, The Platinum Blonde, to be published in 2020. Have you been? Carrie, have you ever seen a woman in a plastic tiara throw up? I have been her. Dressed up as Carrie, straight men and dogs were licking the fake blood from my arms. I think it was the man with his face painted up as a skeleton who spiked my gin and tonic. He could have wrapped his hand around my upper arm as I unlocked my door, 
I try not to imagine anything. I go where I please, but I'm being hunted. I'm running as fast as I can to the end of this year. The new one trawls in like a married man, and his shadow eats mine on the pavement. Sugar. I have accidentally loved several rich girls. When I found out one was dating some boy wonder rock star as well as me, I considered lifting some art from her parents' walls and starting a better life for myself in a new city. I could never have a sugar daddy because I don't look after myself. I chew up my own fingers and lick knives at dinner. There is an inch of brown hair on my head that is eating the blonde. Like a snake, I'm shedding my old self. I used to say money didn't matter. Now I would give anything to be wrapped up in cash like a pashmina on my body. If you must cry, it's better to do so in the back of a Ferrari. <laughs> Bad Girls Club. How could you really know yourself if you'd never had that fake hair extension ripped from the back of your head in the car park of the big Tesco? Sometime in the spring of 2010, the scrap of synthetic lace in your thighs already stained with blood, already too fat for your cutoffs, and a girl called Jessie, the most frightening and gorgeous being you had ever seen. Forgiveness. Sometimes I think about the flat and him inside of it, his hands like rats, my chest a cutting board beneath him. The word no was short for nothing there. I shook like thunder for weeks afterwards. I used to think love was a smashed glass. There are things I was taught as a child that I still believe now. In all probability, someone did to him what he did to me in another time, but it doesn't necessarily help either of us. I wake up in a pool of blood and I think, sure, whatever. I get up in the night to clean my room. I've been having visions of white scorpions infesting my laptop. I've been having nightmares where I have to take notes while a man I used to love gives a lecture on Nietzsche and the master-slave morality. At the end, he avoids me. I wake up in another dream and puke a perfect white snake into the sink. In this one, I am strangled by the giant steel ballerina in the Jeff Koons exhibit. In this dream, I talk to Anna Nicole. She holds my face in her manicured hands. We kiss and then I wake up. Is this thing on? I don't want to write about death anymore. I'm tired of always taking off my heels and crying on the steps outside the ballroom. I want to stuff the whole sky in my mouth like an Hermes scarf, like candy floss from a plastic bucket. I want to submissively drink the blood from your neck in the early evening. Gorgeous, I'm starving. Confessional. 
Baby, you are not always as right as you think you are, but you know a woman must be very hard up to want love. In this economy of shop floors and polishing dinner knives, holding their excruciating heat in a dry cloth napkin, in my chapped hands, in this, in this climate of all my not inconsiderable emotions for no money, where all my blood couldn't buy me a yellow silk skirt, why would I ask the devil for love? Why am I trying to give away everything I have? Am I more religious than I thought? Should I go to Rome or worse? Am I trying to disappear? Am I covering myself up with soil or shards of wallpaper? Why would I ask for love when I could curl up around a thick fur coat, when, like a cat, I will curl up in warmth from just about anywhere? Why then would I ask you for love? How are we? Are we all right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the next few poems are from a series I'm working on at the moment um, called Murder Ballads, and they're poems on the subject of women murderers. Murderers who are women, not people who kill women, sorry. True crime. I want to know why she does it. The killer and her inability to problem solve. Like, how else can she pay off her credit card? What else can she do when he leaves her? When he wants to take the kids? Kill them, of course. Kill him. Most women go for the gun because you can keep your victim at arm's length. But some choose knives. Get close. Lean in. I remember one woman who did the deed with the brutal spike of her blue suede stiletto. Her name was Anna Trujillo, and I had to Google woman kills man with shoe in order to tell you all this. Um, this project has been a bit of an interesting one because um, sometimes people kill for seemingly sort of semi-understandable reasons, whether they're in a bad situation or like they're in an abusive marriage or they have mental health problems. Uh, the woman I wrote this poem about does not fit any of those categories. Uh, this is Dana Sue Gray. Compulsive shopper, daughter of a former beauty queen, Dana, up to her neck in debt, stealing Demerol from the hospital where she worked. Dana, leaving a bloody Nike footprint pointing towards the kitchen. Dana, buying swimsuits, cowboy boots, a ski mask, vodka. Dana of multiple methods, ligature strangulation, bludgeoning, fillet knives. Dana, killing Dora just hours before detectives began following her. Dana, plunging the knife so deep it almost severed Norma's head. Dana, leaving her five-year-old stepson in the car outside waiting for her. One of the things I found fascinating about this project is that, um, that when teenage girls are involved in some way, um, and there's some sort of like jealousy element, um, because like I remember like in one of my earlier poems, I talked about like a girl pulling a hair extension out of somebody's head, and that's the thing I remember a lot from school is girls fighting, um, and then to like be then doing this research and just see that these things can actually go too far sometimes is fascinating. Yeah, maybe not to any of you, to me certainly. Yeah. <laughs> Karen Severson and Laura Dilwell. Laura sent her victim's mother a sympathy card with $20 inside. Karen visited the grave with flowers, 
covered her walls with pictures of them together. She lived with Missy's family for months, claimed she saw Missy's ghost floating above her in bed, sometimes sitting on the sofa. Her car wouldn't start. Mud dripped down the walls. They vowed to find the animal who killed her. Karen and Laura cut off her waist-length hair, drowned her in eight inches of water. Missy wasn't as innocent as everyone thinks, they said. When she moved in on my territory, I just couldn't take it anymore. It was hikers in the end who discovered her. Um, this poem is called Holly Harvey and Sandra Ketchum, and the epigraph is from Holly Harvey, and it just says, we just wanted to leave to be together forever. Holly's lover took part when Holly asked, why aren't you helping me? Holly's to-do list was written on her arm, kill, keys, money, jewelry. The sheriff's detectives noted the blood soaked down through to her underwear. Holly's mother was dressed in a two-piece suit at court. They asked if she felt responsible. She said, absolutely not at all. This is called Marjorie Ann Auburn. Um, she's totally fascinating <laughs> to me. Um, through the course of this, I've had a number of people ask me how to get away with dispose of a body. And Marjorie Ann Auburn almost got away with it, actually. But she found out that... Um, that if in order to get the money from a life insurance policy, somebody has to discover a body. So she moved one of the containers, and this was ultimately how they found out about it. I find these things fascinating as well because I think about women who were convicted in a time when we looked at women very differently, and um, maybe not so differently, but Marjorie certainly. She'd um, been a showgirl in Vegas, and pictures of her in, in these outfits were used as part of the court testimony. And she's, in fact, still serving out a sentence that was given to her using this evidence. Marjorie Ann Orman. I picture her in Lowe's hardware store, stacking Tupperware, a swathe of Barbie hair over her left shoulder. Marjorie, ex-showgirl, on her seventh husband, star of No More Dirty Deals, looking for Prince Charming, working hard, playing hard, ex-stripper, barren woman, not as beautiful as she thought she was. Mother of a miracle baby, home improvement queen, gold digger, wielder of a jigsaw, a woman who is capable of doing anything. They only ever found her husband's torso. You could smell the odor. When she was young, they broke up, then got back together. In every city he went, he looked for her. I'm going to go back to reading um, poems from Platinum Blonde. Um, I, I don't know if I'm obligated to tell you on this or not. It's coming up next year. Please buy it. <laughs> uh, May 2020. Um, okay. This is called Attempt. This is what I remember. The paramedic said, we can't help you unless you've already died. We have to know you are serious. I think his name was Dennis. I said, it feels pretty fucking serious, Dennis. 
I thought death might render me serene, but it didn't. I wasn't going down without a fight. I wanted to steal the backless cotton nightgown they gave me to wear. It was soft and pink. I wanted to shove it in my purse and run. As usual, I cried all my makeup off. I flirted with the junior doctor. He said I had young woman syndrome, which means your veins are hard to find. I said, you have no idea, and puked. My head split all the way along, it seems. It took my mother an age to arrive. When they sent her out, she did not go. She hung around all night. I did not die. Platinum Blonde. On those days, I get enamored with my face or an outfit. I remember the year every girl wore a garland of flowers, and it became a negative thing. Everyone hates a whimsical girl. They don't find themselves funny, but men do with their plain clothes and serious thoughts. That summer, I tried to be like them. I was always on my way to another funeral, clad in black and hiking boots. I made fun of the funny, whimsical girls. Now I die to be with them. Sometimes I dream my eyeliner goes all the way up to my ears like the legs of a spider. Before prom, I glued lashes to my eyes that were heavy and forced them half shut. My brother laughed, but I didn't think it was funny. The last time, my heart broke. I bleached my hair and sat in the salon chair with my scalp blistering like guilt. That night, I slept alone on an empty living room floor. I can laugh about it now, but I don't think it was funny. Wet. Is it too late to tell you this is what love looks like sometimes? I am holding the name of the girl in my mouth like gum in church. I am holding the name of the girl who opened you up like a scallop with a knife. I want to use my hands to hold your wet insides. Sometimes this is what love looks like. I'm holding her name in my mouth like a cough sweet and it numbs me all the way down. I'm out of poems, so thank you. <laughs> James Connor Patterson, by the way, as opposed to James Patterson, just in case anyone thought they were seeing the American crime writer here. Um, I, uh, I write kind of a lot about the Irish border, um, so that's kind of where my focus is going to be on here. Um, 
for those of you who don't know, um, the Irish border and the town of Newry in particular um, is where I grew up. Um, and the first poem I'm going to read you is about the, uh, the origin of the name Newry, which comes from the Irish Eurkin uh, Tra, which translated back into English means the yew tree at the head of the strand. Um, this is just called yew. At which point the saint lifted a fallen arrow and placed it in his alb, carrying it for miles until he reached the head of a desolate valley strand, whereupon, seeing only growths of sweet briar in the mottled sand, he removed the thing and placed it in a small hole, invoking, though only the smallest of seeds yet growing shall become the tallest of all things, a tree, during which time the arrow split and a yew burst slowly into life, ruffling the sweet briar and Patrick's stole, pointing its way toward heaven and crying, my God, this is where I'm rooted. Um, so a lot of what I read about um, sort of comes from, you know, stories that were told to me by my dad, my granda, but also urban legends and uh, pieces of kind of local mythology. Um, and one of the ones that's always stuck with me um, was a story uh, that was told to me by my grandfather, who um, during the sort of 1940s, 1950s, uh, because there was no swimming pool when it was hot uh, during summer, uh, the local kids used to swim in the local quarry. Um, and there was a legend about one of the local quarries um, that it was bottomless. Um, and sort of, you can imagine all of the kind of attempt and stories that grew up uh, around that. Um, so this tries to imagine one of those stories. Uh, this is called The Drowning. The story then became like this. He'd jumped in off a Clydesdale horse, then vanished like Eurydice beneath the sawdust, oil and gorse. His friends went looking for him there, sun-scorched in their wool-knit pants, beneath the rusted excavator, up from High Street and the manse. They brought corned beef and bits of soda, wrapped up in a greaseproof square. They brought some chocolate from the soldiers, some Darcy's kept in earthenware, and checked the crushers filled with ashlar, the Morris tipper and the track. Decided they would jump in also when they failed to bring him back. And so the parents brought their hammers, bits of sheathing, casing nails, and built a mast from railway sleepers, darning suntans for their sails, and built a boat to cross the quarry, diving where their kids went in, and followed them into the hollow, which locals said had no bottom. And so the, par and so the mayor dived for the parents, worried for his yearly vote. And so the council braved the currents for their leader's anecdote, and then the doctors and the soldiers, followed by the entire town, until at last they filled the swim hole and all of us were underground. Um, so I couldn't really talk about the Irish border and the north of Ireland without uh, moving on to the fun stuff, uh, <laughs> which is, of course, uh, the Troubles um, and some of the, uh, I suppose, some of the events that, that people um, don't necessarily know about. Um, one of the things uh, that I wanted to write about was uh, Operation Demetrius, uh, which for those of you who don't know, 
1971, uh, the British government uh, introduced internment without trial uh, in Northern Ireland, where uh, 400 men and boys between the ages of 18 and 40 were locked up and imprisoned without trial. Um, and this kind of imagines that scenario, um, the night of uh, internment when that was introduced and the arrests and stuff that happened. Uh, a couple of notes about the poem. Uh, it utilises a lot of kind of local slang, so I'll uh, clear some of that, that up before I read it. Uh, clegs, um, which is the first word in the poem. A cleg is a horsefly. Uh, Saracen is a police van. Uh, and a phrase, uh, down there for dancing, is a local way of saying, keep your focus. Um, this is just called internment. Clegs and fucking blue-arsed flies stun themselves fatly against the tobacco-stained porthole above my door. Out on Derrybeg Drive, a couple of kids are dragging a roll of chain-link fence off a concrete post. And up by Main Avenue, Heaney's snug as a gun is being tapped out in stones and bottles against a paint-covered Saracen. Soon they'll be here to smash my ma's old bureau to crack the sacred heart with their boot heels, to stick their rifle butts through the sitting room cabinet where I've kept my AOH sash pinned to its backboard like a mothballed wedding dress for 25 years. Down there for dancing, you Brit cunts. My heart exploded two days ago during grandstand and all you'll find now is a stack of old papers, a teacup brimming with mold, a tartan quilted shopping trolley, and my grey face grinning up from the shag to the bin-lidded chorus at St. Bridget's. It's not all quite as heavy as that. Um, a couple of the stories that I was actually told uh, about the Troubles um, have a kind of black humour running through them. Um, and one of my favourites, again, you know, uh, you'll see a bit of a theme emerging here, and was told to me by my granda. Um, he used to drink in this really sort of rough working man's club uh, in the town uh, called the Labour Club. Um, and one of the regulars uh, decided that he was going to try and rob the place um, sometime in the mid-1970s. Um, came in in a balaclava, uh, held the barman up. And as soon as the barman heard his voice, um, he said, Darcy, would you sit the fuck down? Um, <laughs> So uh, this tries to imagine what might have been going through Darcy's head when he did that. Um, this is called The Regulars. There we were, us Labour Club regulars, sat hunkered around the scorched end of a woodbine gasper, waiting for Darcy and discussing the horses. We said things like, we're all beating dockets here, son, and stand us one paddy and I'll get you when I'm solvent. Because, as Paddy well knew, the luck of us men was perpetually on its way, having its progress hampered by critical looks from the omniscient wife, or being decanted down storm drains by paras who blocked off roads and butchered dogs, by men who damaged heirlooms and battered children. Anyone could see these were hard times, and when Darcy finally appeared, he was wearing a moth-eaten crombie, and his face was hidden behind a reconditioned tea cosy. Someone told us later that he'd had a six-shot revolver stuffed into his pocket. Others of us remembered that it was a finger pressed against the inside lining of his coat. Nevertheless, once he waded out across the clubhouse floor, he was like a buckshot goose negotiating water, and it soon became clear that he intended to have us robbed. 
The coffers of our takings in vital need of redistribution, the excitement in his hands made manifest by their shaking. And so he pipes up to no one in particular. Put your fucking hands up and open that there till. To which Paddy responds, cool as you like, that if a single fucking penny went missing, it'd be added to his tab and doubled three times over. <laughs> to which Darcy relented and ordered a rum and black. His drink blighted face still caught inside its cozy, his sloped malnourished shoulders still wrapped inside their crombie. This was in the 70s, and though I'm really not sure how, there'd come a time much later when he was twice elected mayor. <laughs> that last bit is actually true, by the way. Um, uh, and sort of sticking on the, th on the theme of my, of my granda, um, and segueing slightly into um, the influence that he has had on, on these poems, and I suppose on, on my personality and, and how to sort of negotiate the world and, and so on. Um, this is a poem uh, dedicated to my granda, but also dedicated to uh, a writer uh, who was a big influence of mine, um, who I met at a, a book signing in Manchester a number of years ago, and they weren't what I was expecting. Um, the moral kind of this story is uh, don't meet your heroes. Um, this is called On Meeting an Influence at a Book Signing. Abrasive. Swishing Moscato like a plug of masticated chaw, he spat name, then eyed me like I was there to flog his signature all over eBay. <laughs> James, I replied, before slinking off in a fume. So if you're reading this, D, unlikely as you are to, spend some time in a room darkened by your own bitter irony and reflect that you are as nothing when compared with my own dead grandfather, who fabricated steel for a living and knew that words like these held no water. For fuck's sake, he'd say, welding part of a gate. Why are you here if you can't hold it straight? <laughs> <laughs> so kind of I, still within the, the theme of a family, um, I thought I'd dedicate another poem to uh, perhaps the biggest influence in my life, uh, which is my... my father, um, and uh, this poem uh, tries to imagine uh, the night that him and my mum met each other. It's called Bar Story. That night, he takes the freight ferry from Hesham to Warren Point and stands by the railing of the upper car deck, smoking embassy regals and flicking pages from an annotated A5 copybook into the Irish Sea. This is the act of giving back Eucharist. Names, dates, newspaper clippings, sketches of old girlfriends, addresses, phone numbers. Memorabilia useful to no one. They leave his hands like frightened birds. Later, he'll meet my mother in a sawdust dive on Francis Street after spending hours with his own father and uncle, standing drinks and leafing through a beer-soaked copy of Anfoblocht. He tells me this in the Café Arunia in Pamplona, 25 years later, in front of a giant floor-to-ceiling length mirror, casting golden light back and forth onto our table like a private quasar. I'm nodding and shaking my head intermittently, listening to my dad's advice, and trying to imagine being more than just the unintended consequence of two strangers who took to marriage. But it's difficult 
Between him and me, things get summoned to inhabit our circle like Ouija. And as his story plays out, someone does an accent, someone else a face. And when the punchline finally arrives, we laugh because neither one of us is talking. Um, so I'll, I'll leave you with, with this one. Um, so again, kind of going back to the, the Troubles theme uh, and how that's kind of affected the Irish border, yes, but you know the north of Ireland and the island of Ireland as a whole. Um, throughout the course of the Trouble, um, 16 people uh, became known as the Disappeared. And these were people who um, were uh, murdered and whose bodies basically never turned up. And that got me uh, thinking about a, par a parallel with the much grander, um, much bigger scale conflict in Argentina in the 1970s. Uh, and I discovered that there were thousands of victims in uh, the Argentine conflict uh, who similarly were known as the disappeared. Uh, and this tries to, I suppose, tie that link together. Uh, this is called The Disappeared. Even now, I find it difficult to imagine being a campesino, dicing sweet potato over the kitchen sink, my hands calloused from years of raising sugarcane and lemon. What could possibly be to such a life? Argentina is tending more important matters. I hand out leaflets in the Monteros for Santuco. In January, a transport plane is shot down and kills 13. I'm not sorry. Peron is not in power, so civility can rise again in the green-cut mountains of Tucumán like Christ removing Lazarus's shroud, the sun shimmering off La Angostura, the blue and white of the flag in cloudless sky. And with these things, when they come, they wrap me like a present. Sometime close to dawn, with an oil rag in my mouth and a blood-stained pillowcase wrapped around my head, I'm thrown from a helicopter into the South Atlantic and sent to greet the fish. The last thing I hear is traitor, or its equivalent. I have no frame of reference. The ocean carries me over thousands of miles, and when I'm disturbed again, I'm something else entirely. A rumour in the sand, perhaps, or a ghost without pasture. Someone who might be a shell or a fossil, foundations on an unfinished house, or four converged headlamps on a quiet country road. Thank you.